You can go ahead and turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 25 as we come this Lord's Day to Matthew 25 verses 1 through 30. If you've been with us, you know that we've been walking through Matthew's Gospel and in recent weeks we've been dealing with questions and uh, statements related to the return of Christ as Jesus' disciples ask Him specifically about His return, about when it will be, about how they will know, and He's been answering those questions. And today we'll continue to look at that as Jesus shares two parables uh, about His return and about our need to be ready for His return. So we're going to read this text and then pray for it uh, that we might learn from God's Word this Lord's Day. Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 1, this is what Christ says. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with the lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. And the door was shut. Afterward, other virgins came also asking, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his own ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them and made five talents more. So also he who had two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had this, the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed, so I was afraid, and I went and hid your town in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I had not sown, and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was at my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, will more be given. And he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness, in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's pray for our time in God's Word this morning. 
Father, as we have worshipped You, our, our prayer that we lift up to You or the words that we heard sung earlier. We want to bless You. We want to be a blessing to You. Father, if we had 10,000 years, uh, we couldn't even begin in that time to, to name all of the reasons we should bless Your holy name. You are gracious, You are good, You are sovereign, You are loving, You are merciful, You are kind. Lord, You have given us something this morning. You've given us this moment. You've given us this window to to look at Your Word, to to, to understand it more, and we pray that we would. We pray, God, that we'd learn from it. Pray, God, that we would apply it. Pray, God, in the power of Your Holy Spirit that, that You would change lives through it. And we pray all these things in the powerful name of our King and Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. We are continuing to look at this section of Scripture that that talks about being prepared, being being ready for a return. As we saw earlier, we got to talk a little to our our Poland mission team. Most of you know my wife and son are a part of that team. And uh, we were very excited to send them off. And we are even more excited to receive them back. Uh, the children and I, the girls and I have been counting down the days and now we're counting down the hours till, till Mama returns. Uh, they are looking forward to it with great anticipation. I am looking forward to it with great anticipation. Uh, I love my girls and my girls love their Mama and we all need Mama to be home. Uh, it's something that we can circle on our calendar that, that, that we, can, we can even get on the computer and watch the plane in the air and its trajectory and where it's at. We can anticipate the very moment that that plane will land and within a few minutes when we will see that team, when I will see my wife, when they will see their mother. We can mark it, we can circle it, we can be ready for it. Christ says in the Scripture that we are to anticipate His return, but it's very different than anticipating the return, uh, the welcoming of a loved one, because He says no one's going to know the day or the hour. Or you're not going to be able to get on the computer and see the trajectory of it. It's just going to happen. And it's going to be sudden. And the way that Jesus describes it in His Word, and specifically in these parables we're going to look at this Lord's Day, is, is there's a suddenness to it. And as much as there's some who expect it, some who are ready, there'll be many who aren't ready. There'll be many who weren't expecting. And so, Jesus teaches us the reality that even this Lord's Day, even now, 2,000 years after this has taken place, there are some among us here, there are some among us in our world who, no matter how much we say, get ready, get ready, get ready, they're not going to be ready. And so my prayer for you and for me is that God in His grace might change that this Lord's Day. That for some of us perhaps today who don't sit here ready, perhaps God will reveal the truth of the Gospel to you that that you too might be ready for His return because it is indeed coming. And as we've been looking at that, we've seen that over and over again. It is coming, but not all will be ready. So we're going to look at these parables and look at what they teach us about that. And the first thing we'll look at is this. In this parable... Uh, speaking of these ten virgins, these ten young ladies, the first point we see there is that waiting to repent is foolish. Now, uh, let me show you where I get that from in this passage. Essentially, Jesus shares a story here about something that's slightly unfamiliar to us. Uh, He's talking about wedding festivities that, that were very true in His day, but they're very different in our day. 
Uh, for most of us, uh, wedding festivities, when we go to a wedding, basically consist of, you know, get to the church at a certain time, and, and you sit there and you wait for the ceremony, and bride comes in, and, and, and ceremonies in particular, wedding ceremonies, are, are fairly short these days. They're not real long. In fact, uh, if they go very long, we start to get kind of fidgety and, and wonder when this thing's going to wrap up. Uh, I, I did one wedding a number of years ago for a couple who uh, I, they had all kinds of things they wanted in their ceremony, and it was rather long. And, and about halfway through it, there was a moment when they were kneeling and praying, and, and I was kind of to the side and I overheard a gentleman in the second row say, most marriages don't last as long as this wedding. Uh, it was a long one. But in particular, uh, we know what to expect in ceremonies. And afterwards, you know, there's a little reception and then everything's done. But in Jesus' day, it was different. Uh, The festivities, the ceremony, what went on, uh, it would take place over a day, sometimes over several days. Uh, It would take place in several locations. There was a part that would take place at the bride's home among her family, her people. There was a part that would take place most of the time that the feast itself at the end, the culmination of it, at the groom's family's home in that area with his family. And in between, there would be a lot of pomp and circumstance. There, there would be ceremony. There would be uh, groups moving from one place to another. Uh, even culturally, this happens some places today. A number of years ago when I was in West Africa, I was walking through a village there, and, and this huge wedding party was coming towards us. And, and, and it was, we realized afterwards it was the groom going to, to, to get the bride from her family and then to go over to this area for the ceremony. And, and that's similar to what we see happening here. Uh, Jesus describes to us these ten young ladies who they are a part of this wedding party, Uh, Perhaps these are bridesmaids, and we're not sure exactly what their role is, but we know part of their role is they are responsible to go out and meet the groom, meet the bridegroom, and usher him into the marriage feast, the wedding feast. Uh, We know that it's night. Uh, We know that it's late into the night. Uh, We can assume from the passage and from the customs of the day that that they're going out some distance. They're not just walking across the street, but they're going out some distance. And their responsibility is to light the way and to guide this bridegroom and kind of his entourage with him to the marriage feast. And so Jesus, as he tells the story, uh, says up front that, that five of these young ladies were wise, five were unwise. The, the difference between them was the, the, the readiness, the preparation that they made. Uh, all of them had these oil lamps, uh, probably something like a torch or kind of an oil lamp on a torch, and, and they had gone out with them and all of them had oil in them. They were burning, but five of them who were wise took extra oil, realizing this may take a while, and it certainly did. It, it says here there's a delay in the bridegroom's coming, a delay to the point that both the wise and the unwise fall asleep. Uh, so they didn't know when he was coming. And so when they hear the shout, they get up, they're getting ready, and the five who didn't bring extra oil, realize they're not ready. They're not prepared. And so as Jesus shares, they then turn to the five who were wise, who were prepared. They want to borrow some of their oil. Uh, They say they can't give it to them. I don't think that they're being greedy or stingy here. Chances are they had enough to guide the path to where they were going. Had they given these others some, they would have all found themselves in darkness. And so they tell them to go into the shops to go into the places of business Uh, oftentimes these places would have stayed open because the wedding festivities would have been a big big to do and they would have been open for that but as you know in this story uh, they're too late 
They go, they get their oil, they show up, but at this point the bridegroom's already in there, the gates are shut, and then we realize what Jesus is talking about. We realize the point of the story at the end of it. When the bridegroom says to those young ladies, truly I say to you, I do not know you. And then Jesus says this, watch therefore, for you know neither the day or the hour. Uh, Jesus here is helping us to understand what the story is all about. Uh, Jesus is not trying to help us to be better wedding planners. Uh, He's not trying to teach us about uh, lamps and oil and batteries for your flashlight or some obscure points like that. He's trying to tell a point in the context of His return. And the point is this. He is coming back. We've looked at that already. And when He does, there will be some who are ready and there will be some who are not. And specific to this story, I think that Jesus is making a point, and the point is this, that there are many who feel that they can just kind of wait to the end to make some kind of decision. I've shared the Gospel with many people, and I've had a number of people respond to me with something along this line of, well, I realize I need to do something, I realize I need to, and they might say, get right with God or change my life or fill in the blank, but essentially they need to repent. They, they realize that, and at the same time, there's this sense where they're saying, but I'm just not really ready yet. Uh, there's some things I want to do first. And essentially what they're saying is, I don't want to give up what I've got. I don't want to give up my sin, because that's what's Lord in their life. Whatever it is they're saying, they're just not ready to repent. You'll talk to others who have this idea that somehow they're going to know when their life's about to end. And right there at the end, they're going to get right with God. And so we get this picture kind of the, the deathbed confession. And yet, what does Jesus say? He says, you're not going to know. He says, it's going to happen in a moment. And when it happens, the opportunity to make decisions, that the opportunity to be ready is gone because it's happened. And so he gives that very chilling reminder that here are these young women, they've gone and, and, and it wasn't that they were opposed to the idea. They finally go out and they get the oil, they show up, but, but it's just too late. And the door shut. And, and he gives us those words, which if you're a believer this morning, these words... They should be a little haunting to you, a little little scary to you. When Jesus says to them, I never knew you. I mean, think about where we've seen that before. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, there's going to be people in the kingdom, when, when, when all things are culminated at judgment, who are going to stand before Him, and they are going to say to Jesus, Lord, Lord. Now think about that. Who calls Jesus Lord? We're not talking about pagans out there protesting the idea of the Gospel and, and the Bible is full of myths. Now these are people who are saying, oh yes, we believe. Jesus is Lord. There's going to be people who say, Lord, Lord. And not just that. Did we not do this in Your name, and this in Your name, and this in Your name? Cast out demons. Anybody here cast out? A, don't raise your hand if you did. because We'll go a whole other direction. Yeah, All these things. We've done all this stuff. And Jesus is going to say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. And those are chilling words because what they teach us is that there are people in the church today, not just our church, but in churches who profess the name of Christ, who know the Gospel, who could articulate the Gospel, and yet are not truly repentant. 
And I don't think these are people who, well, I really thought I was repenting. I think there are people who deep down, the outside looks a certain way, but the inside looks very different. And maybe that is you this morning. And maybe you sit here this morning and from the outside you look like everybody else and and maybe you've been in church all your life and maybe you profess to be a Christian, but you know deep down, deep down, you have yet to bow your knee to the throne of Christ. And what Jesus says is there's going to be a day when the door's going to be shut and it is foolishness, foolishness to think you can somehow time these things out and wait to the very end to get right. He says it's just foolish. And the question then is, so, so why are we foolish? I mean, why, why do we wait? Why, why this foolishness? Uh, you know, there's a, there's a certain passivity that comes to it. I, this week uh, with my girls, uh, we went to North Carolina to my parents' house to, to get some backup while mom's away. And, and, and while they're there, I don't know if any of y'all can relate to this, but parents, sometimes it seems when you take your children to the grandparents' There's just something that kicks in, and I don't know if it's all the sugar grandma and grandpa are feeding them or, or a different environment, but you know they go from crazy to hyper-crazy, and, and then it just seems like everything's getting broken and people running into each other, and it's just chaos. And uh, I'm sitting there one night, and, and I don't even remember which night it was because it happened multiple nights, but you know one runs into the other, and everybody's just crying and screaming and carrying on, and so I'm sitting there trying to sort this out, and in the midst of that, I say to one, you know, that, that, that was just foolish. You're being foolish. And she turned to me and said, well, Dad, I, I didn't mean to. I said, I know, if you'd meant to, you would be wicked and evil. But I know you didn't mean to do it. I hope you didn't mean, I hope you didn't sit down and say, well, I'm going to run out of the corner. I'm going to headbutt her and knock her down and maybe give her a book. No, you just did it because you're foolish. And friends, that's how we are. It's not that you get out of bed in the morning and say, how can I rebel the most against the holy God. But in your foolishness, in my foolishness, we sin. And in our foolishness, we think we know better than God. And so we will sit there. Maybe we don't raise our fists physically, but we raise our fist in our heart and we say, well, this is what I'm going to do because this is what I think is right and this is what I think it should be. And yet the Scripture says, there's a way that seems right to a man, Proverbs 14, but it's in his death. Scripture says we don't even know our own heart. And it's foolishness to think we do, and it's foolishness to somehow think we can hold back repentance and hold back readiness. Jesus says very clearly in this parable, don't be found there. Don't don't wait. Repent today. Be ready today. Anticipate today. And goes on to share another parable, and I think in this parable we see this repentance played out and, and what should happen. And I put this in your notes. I think the second thing we see is that that this repentance that we're called to, it should yield fruit in our lives. Uh, Jesus shares this parable of the talents. Now let me pause for a second. I think sometimes we read this and we just kind of glaze over it because we really don't know what He's talking about. We, we think about talents in our day and age as, you know, who's got the most talent? What are your talents? It's very different. Jesus is talking here quite obviously about a monetary unit. Uh, we don't use the monetary measurement talents. And so I think sometimes we kind of picture this little, you know, maybe we had a picture in Sunday school, flannel board, and the, Jesus and the people with the talents, they got these five little coins that are called talents. That, that's not what's happening here. These are, these are large amounts of money. Uh, a talent, uh, first and foremost, was a weight of measurement in Jesus' day. And our equivalent was about 60 to 80 pounds. 
Uh, it could have been any precious metal. It could have been gold, copper, silver. So you start to get a concept here. Imagine 80 pounds of gold times five, and that's what he's giving someone. Uh, current modern estimates of what's taking place here is that a talent was worth about 6,000 denarii. Again, a useless thing to mention, but uh, a denarii we've talked about before. Uh, Matthew chapter 20, uh, the, the, the workers who, the laborers for the vineyard, the master promises them a denarii for their day's work. Uh, the temple tax was a denarii. A denarii was essentially a coin that was equivalent to a, to a day's wage for your average laborer. And so a talent was about 6,000 of those. And so just to kind of bring all that in, this is about 20 years income for someone. For one talent. And so you start to get a picture of the wealth, of the mass that's taking place here. Here's a master who's going away and he's entrusting massive wealth to his servants. Now again, that might seem a little odd to us. We think of master, servant, master, slave. He's just telling them what to do. He doesn't treat them like equals. And yet, in Jesus' day, uh, many of these servants were bond servants. They, they worked very closely with the master and the master entrusted them with much. And here we see a master's going on a long journey. We find out later it takes a long time probably years and so before he goes he entrusts these three servants with probably the bulk of his wealth in our terms five talents this could have been hundreds of thousands probably millions of dollars in in our economy today he gives this first servant second servant he gives two third servant he gives one well you know the story at some point he comes back now probably not a few weeks later uh, this was probably many years later he comes back and there's there's a reckoning and the reckoning is, I'm here to collect what is mine. And so the first servant comes and he's taken that five talents and he's doubled it. So just a massive, massive amount of money here. Second one's done the same with two and yet we have this third one. This third one who did nothing with the money other than hide it. Now, again, we don't know uh, specifically what his motivation was. We do know that the master calls him wicked, so we can assume his intentions weren't good. Uh, some have read uh, this and, and said that in Jesus' day, it wasn't all that peculiar for a, a wicked servant, for uh, an unruly servant to try to steal from his master. And one of the ways he could steal from him would be in a situation like this where the master's going away on a long journey. He could then take what he was given and bury it somewhere. And maybe there would be so much time that, that maybe the master... Uh, some ill would befall him. He wouldn't ever return that that money could actually become his. And perhaps that's what's going on here. We don't know, but we know he's not faithful with it. So again, what, what's the point of all this for us? Well, I think there's a couple. The first one I've already mentioned. I think Jesus again here is not just talking about masters and money. Uh, he's talking about the kingdom. He's talking about his return. He's talking about repentance. And I think specifically he's saying that Authentic repentance should yield fruit. Authentic repentance should yield fruit. And this is what that means, is that if you this morning call yourself a Christian, uh, if you count yourself to be among those who believe in the gospel, that, that Jesus did indeed die on the cross for our sins, uh, that you believe at some point you repented, you turned from your sin, you placed your faith in Christ, He is your Lord, if that's happened, we should see it. We should notice it. There should be fruit of it. In other words, if, if you line your life up against the life of an unbeliever, 
that there should be a difference, a recognizable difference. There should be fruit. And this whole notion that, well, you know, my relationship with God's a private thing, and it's just kind of personal, and I don't like to talk about it, and, and you know, I don't know that anybody should be able to notice that. Well, we start talking like that, and we look a lot more like the servant who went and buried what he had in the ground. And I think that's what some of us have done. We haven't really responded to the gospel. We've just kind of put it on the shelf somewhere. We just kind of live with this notion that our relationship with God is just one portion of our life. It doesn't need to really affect the others. And, and it fits really nicely over here on the cabinet. And so we grab our Bible on Sunday, go to church, forget where we put it, scramble around the next Sunday looking for it, and so on and so forth. And yet, what is Jesus saying here? He's saying, no, that our repentance, that there should be fruit in our life of it. It should be recognizable. There, there should be works. Now, I know as Protestants, we don't like to talk about work sometimes. We want to talk about how the gospel is grace. It's a free gift. We don't have to work for it. We don't have to earn it. And that's true. And yet, the Scripture also says if you are a Christian, you should have works. Your, your faith should produce works. Listen to just one example of that. James chapter 2. What good is it, my brothers, If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and be filled without giving them the thing needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Do you believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Well, what's being said there? It's, it's essentially this. You can have great doctrine and theology and belief. You can know the Bible very well and be very little different than a demon. It doesn't mean you have saving faith. If you authentically have repented, there should be fruit of in your life. Here, here's a very basic way of understanding it works don't produce faith. You can't earn your salvation. You can't work your way to heaven. Works don't produce faith. But authentic faith produces works. And if your life doesn't look any different, then the question is, are you the unwise young woman in this parable? Are you the the third uh, servant here who's just buried something? There should be fruit of our repentance. And And ultimately, the last point that I want to point out before we wrap up here is this, that in Christ's return on that day, excuses are going to be useless. Excuses will be useless when Jesus returns. We we see this need to have fruit of repentance. We also see that there's no fruit of the third servant. He's just buried what was given to him. And, And what does he do? The master, in talking to the first two servants, doesn't appear to be a harsh man, doesn't appear to be a hard man. He, he simply says to them, uh, you did great, you did good, come and enter into your master's joy. Uh, this is not some rigid, stern person. Uh, this is a master who is just grateful for the obedience and the stewardship of his servants. And yet when this third servant comes to him, what does he say? Well, master, you see, I knew you were a hard man. 
I knew you like to reap where you didn't sow, and, and you like to gather where you spread no seed, and so I, I, man, I didn't want to lose any of this, so I just went and buried it and kept it safe. Well, again, we get the implication from the passage that this guy's just making excuses. There's nothing in the text to tell us that this was a hard man, a harsh man. Certainly not one who expected something from nothing. He invested all this money. I mean, think in your own life. You know, you go to someone and you take everything you own and you entrust it to them. And then you come back to see how it's grown. Would, would you be a harsh person expecting something from nothing? No, you're, you're just expecting faithful stewardship of what you've provided. And that's what this man was doing. And yet this servant immediately just has excuse after excuse after excuse. And so the master calls him out on those excuses and basically says, well, if that's what you thought, if you thought that's what I was like, then you should have taken it to the bank out of fear so I could at least collect the interest. The master calls this third servant out on his wickedness and essentially saying that, that's not what you thought and your excuses don't matter. Because it's time for a reckoning. Friends, the Scripture teaches us this is exactly what's going to happen to every person one day. And we're going to stand before a holy God. And we may come with our list of excuses. Just imagine the excuses of our day. Well, I didn't know that's what the Bible taught. Well, nobody ever told me that. Well, I, God, I just thought you were like... Well, I didn't... have all these perceptions of what we may think God is like and yet God has revealed to us exactly who he is and our refusal our refusal to obey his word and to respond to it is not an excuse it's sin and there's going to be a day when it's not going to matter what your excuses are because Romans 3 tells us that we're just going to be silenced and judgment's going to happen and so the question this Lord's Day is the same question as the last Lord's Day. It's the same question ultimately every Lord's Day. The question is this, are you ready for that? Are, are the people in your life ready for that? Do you really believe that's going to happen? I mean, do you really believe God's Word is true and that one day we're going to stand before a holy God and there's going to be accountability and there's going to be a reckoning? Or do you think that you can just make up the rules? That you can just do what you want? You can go bury it in the ground and live how you want to and it's all going to work out. If that's where you are, then I want to say to you very firmly what God's Word says. You're foolish. And you need to repent. And you need to have faith in Christ. And for those of you who have, we're not just to have faith and then have no works. <laughs> that faith should radically affect you every day of your life. And if it doesn't, the question is, have you, have I authentically repented in the first place? And the great news is that where we stand today uh, at noon, this Lord's Day, the door has not been shut yet. It is still open and we can still respond. And I beg of you, don't, don't wait. At least you find yourself in a moment where the door is shut. Let's pray to that end. Father, we thank You for your word and we thank you for the grace and mercy you give us today lord we thank you that we're not standing outside the door yet but lord one day the door will shut just as jesus gave that illustration that we looked at last week 
it'll be like the days of Noah. And Lord, there was a moment when that ark door shut and the floodwaters rose and Your wrath was poured out. And Father, that will happen. Father, I pray that if there's any here who's yet to really repent and turn from their sin and embrace Christ as their Savior and, and live a life based on the Gospel, Lord, I pray that You would call them to repentance now. And Lord, for those who have, Lord, I pray that they're living based on that. Lord, the Scripture tells us it's easy for us to get entangled in sin. And Lord, if there's any here who is entangled in sin in their life right now, Lord, I, I pray they would repent of it. That they would stop their foolishness. That they would live according to the Gospel. We pray for these things in Christ's name. Amen.